Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast Rules of Engagement. This episode is brought to you by Rye House Kart Raceway, the venue for the next Missed Apex Karting Day and live podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. Hello there, Matt. Hey there, Spanners. How are we doing today? Bad. This is the illest that anyone has ever been, and throughout human history, I don't think anyone has been this brave as to do a live stream whilst this ill. I'm thoroughly impressed well well, don't be i was forced to do this because we're going on holiday next week that's why there's no live stream on the sunday so mrs spanner said you must do your show if you want to do it at all early in the week so we're doing it early in the week and we've got a private live stream because like i said i'm feeling proper poorly and i couldn't face the whole wrath of the full mean normal chat room who were super super mean well except for when they're being funny Yeah, they're funny at my expense all the time. Anyway, no, uh, if you do want to join the live stream, make sure you go to YouTube, subscribe to us on Missed Apex Podcast. You'll get a notification when we go live and you can join the live chat. Normally Sundays, 8pm. Certainly as as the season starts, it will be more regularly at Sunday, 8pm UK time. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong. But we're first. I'm also joined by VLN champion Bradley Philpott. How's it going, Brad? It's going better now that I've been invited in to write the rules of Formula One with you. Yeah, that is totally what we're going to do. Like, I am always stunned when we have an incident and we go, well, let's just look at the rule book and see what it says. And it generally says nothing. Yeah, it's amazing how a lot of the driving etiquette is completely unwritten and it's just accepted when different people have different understandings of the same thing and that's how we get into arguments and discussions so i'm glad we're here to clear it all up and give people a proper framework to use once and for all this will kill all f1 arguments internet wide 
obviously it's not going to do that. But Matt, maybe, maybe amongst ourselves, when we do whose fault is this is, is we can have something to refer to, some kind of consistency. A standard frame of reference seems like a very good idea, but I'm not sure we really want to kill off all arguing about whose fault it is because, uh, well, that does seem to drive rather a lot of our audience, doesn't it? No, well, that, yes, that is a feature because have you found that a lot of the other outlets will just generally say, oh, yeah, it's a racing incident. So these these two great drivers at the top of their game in the top tier of motorsport will have the most dramatic thing about that sport, which is wheel-to-wheel racing and then contact. And when they come to talk about it and analyze it, they go, ah, it's just one of those things. It's just just a racing incident. Yeah, no, it's much more fun to have to pick someone who caused it and who's responsible for it. Imagine, like, football pundits going on and on about, like, stud length, going on about pitch conditions, going on about people's kit, strategy. But when it comes to the goal, they go, oh, yeah, and then he kicked it and it went in. That That is the equivalent of what most Formula One media does when it comes to racing and racing incidents. Because, I mean, even roll that back, when they don't make contact... They barely ever talk about who, you know, who had the right to pass or who defended well or who attacked well. It hardly ever comes up. It certainly never gets lingered on. There's a lot of assumed knowledge, isn't there? Um, The commentators, especially if they're drivers themselves, um, assume that the audience just understands why. And, And also sometimes the commentators may have the wrong idea. Maybe they've never really thought about it too much. Um, If they are a driver, they've just gone with what they've learned from karting. And they don't necessarily, they couldn't necessarily describe why a certain thing is allowed and another thing isn't allowed in a combat situation. Well, yeah, it seems to me that if you've learned it by participation early on, that the knowledge is just sort of baked in. I got in trouble for this. I didn't get in trouble for this. Therefore, that's the way it is. But looking at it from the outside as an adult, what strikes me is that all of the rules seem fairly straightforward. There's so much context that's unwritten about how to interpret them. And that's really what we as fans and viewers miss a lot of the time and that the commentators oftentimes don't do a good job of explaining to us. I think a lot of commentators and fans rely on just saying that oh, this is this is a really big gray area and you can look at it both ways. And in a lot of instances, that isn't actually the case. If you drill down to the nitty gritty, you can actually get rid of a lot of that gray area and say, no, no, this person was at fault in this situation, or even to the point where, and I'm sure we'll use examples later, where you can say this person was technically at fault, but maybe they should have done something else in order to preserve their car or to continue in the race. Uh, Now that's two very different things though, isn't it? So we're talking about what the stewards would say about it and then what their team boss would say about it. Or what the stewards should say about it, because I also don't think the stewards apply the rules or the the driving etiquette in combat situations consistently in the way that we're going to describe. But as long as everyone knows we're right and we have (laughs) thought about this properly and we're the same at every race, unlike the stewards. Yeah. So it's like there's a legality to it or a technicality to it. Technically, I was correct to do that. But then there's also kind of a practicality to it. As in practically speaking, that was a really, really silly thing to do. And now my car is in pieces. I tell you what, though, Brad, you're the only one who's come up through like the junior karting system, as it were. And you've kind of raced with these guys, not those guys in F1, for example, but like say you've shared track time with Alex Brundle and you've been in the in echelons of racing that make us incredibly, incredibly jealous. 
you've learned it from a young age. Do you think you have a different view of those incidents from like me and Matt watching it as armchair pundits? Maybe on the face of it, when you first see an incident, but I think once, and we've had this in our own private discussions, once we discuss a certain incident and I explain why I think a certain thing is right or wrong, or a driver has acted in a correct way or the wrong way, and we really discuss why that is, I think generally you do have the same understanding as me. I think most of us can come to a consensus because the reason that we're coming to a particular conclusion is because it logically makes sense uh, once you have that basic framework. So I don't know whether we want to set out some some ground rules. Well, we can do. I think I think the whole show is kind of like a ground rules setting. So what I'll do is we'll record this and then I'll listen back to it and I'll see if I can come up with a basic missed apex set of rules like thou shalt not stick your nose in in a hairpin or something like that. I will post it up as well on the on the internets. And then throughout the season, we can do amendments. So for example, if Carl comes in with one of his outstandingly incorrect opinions about a racing incident, he can come in and say, well, I want a Carl Power amendment. And then we can discuss that and see if that amendment gets through and things like that, Trumpets. So like basically you're saying the Trumpets amendment would be just never, ever, ever try to pass trumpets going into any turn ever because it will only end in disaster? Well, in iRacing, yes, absolutely. Because yeah. you turn off the spotter <laughs> in iRacing that tells you if someone's to your left or right. You refuse to map a button that lets you look to the left or right. And you just obstinately take the turn, whatever may whatever may be there. Uh, this is the Verstappen approach. And I, I maintain it works <laughs> most excellent. Uh, yes. So, yeah, we'll, we'll lay down those rules. And I think it will give us some consistency. And also what it stops us doing is having too much of a bias. So if I have argued for an amendment because Lewis Hamilton got his tyre punctured, aka, uh, sorry, just like Rosberg in Belgium 2014, for example, and I decide that sticking your nose in in that situation is bad because it was Rosberg and that's evil. If Hamilton then does that same thing to Vettel, it stops me from suddenly changing my mind because you can go, hey, hang on a minute. When it was the other way around, you definitely said this. Empirically speaking, that may not entirely be true. Why, you still think that I have the ability to, to flip-flop strongly? Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we will point it out every time, don't worry. But So, uh, what we based this on originally was your infamous now lane system, Bradley. And uh, some of our, our close friends who we've allowed into the chat room have said, do we need anything more than the Bradley Philpot lane system? But I think you'll be the first to admit that that was something that you were formulating in your head almost as that show, as that masterclass session unfolded. Yeah, although I'm actually still quite happy with it. And we've actually, we've all together in our private chats kind of still referred to it. And nobody's, although we take the mickey a little bit, nobody's really completely discredited it. It it does work as a general system. So maybe I should explain for any new listeners um, what, what we mean by this lane system. All right. Because it, let's it go does sound that. a bit silly. Well, let, let, let's just start with like a real basic, very easy to understand situation like an oval. So on an oval, it's very clear what lane you're in. Yeah. So effectively, if you're next to someone, if you're driving alongside them and you're in your lane, and, and you can even picture this going around a roundabout on the road, but I think ovals are a really good example. You've, if, you, if there's no one next to you, you can move into that lane to your heart's content. There could be three lanes to your right, for example, you can use all three of them if there's nobody there. But the moment there's another car occupying some of that space, even if it's just a very little bit, um, as with the Formula One rule, if any part um, of the front wing of, of a car 
is is kind of overlapping you, that same kind of rule. If any part of your opponent is occupying the space next to you, you can't move into that lane. Um, and that is that's a very basic way of looking at the lane system. The areas that it becomes a little bit more tricky to apply to, although not impossible, just tricky on the face of it, is when the track is an awkward shape, um, when people are doing different lines, that kind of thing. But we can still apply certain caveats to that to make the lane system work. But essentially, if there's someone next to you, you can't move into the space they're occupying. And then we build from those foundations. So if we start with our four lane motorway on the oval. So if you're on that inside one, yeah, you've got two steps. And then there's someone in the very outside one. You can't go into that outside lane. So obviously, the more common scenario is it's someone on the inside and someone just on the outside of them. So what happens when that oval starts to bend round to the left? What happens to that lane system? Obviously, if you carry on straight without turning, you end up heading towards the outside of the bend. So what happens to our lane system there? Yeah, so as as the corner begins and you get into the, so the, the left turn of your oval, the lanes, the theoretical lanes, follow the shape of the track. Um, or we, we did put in a caveat when I originally kind of formed this, or the lanes follow the consented path of the two cars or three cars or whatever involved. So if you're all on the same trajectory, if you're all running wide at the same rate, it's almost like you've all consented that this is the new lane. But but generally, you follow the the shape of the circuit and that continues, if you're side by side with another car, that is, that continues your lane. If you're both taking the racing line side by side, obviously, that's a slightly different shape. But that's when we look at specific situations. Well, you know, I'm going to bring up a very non-drivery kind of comparison, but it's always struck me very much that when you see drivers, especially ones of extreme skill, navigating turns like this is very much like uh, professional musicians playing together without a conductor and that the tempo changes and everything else like that have to be done sort of by mutual consent. You have to listen, pay attention and bounce off of each other or else there will be utter disaster. Apart from saying bounce off each other, that's a really good example. I think that that works. That works quite well. So uh, obviously everything is not as simple as an oval. Uh, a lot of times you are going very fast in a straight line and then that, that pesky track awkwardly springs off in one direction. And okay, I'll admit it. Fine. This whole episode is because me and Jeansy had a very, very long argument about an iRacing incident. And how that came about is essentially Jeansy is a very fast carter. He's a very experienced racer. However, in this in this particular scenario in iRacing that he's not used to, I've certainly got a better setup than him, much to his uh, chagrin, much to his deep-rooted insecurity, much to his hellish, painful, uh, rejected feeling. I'm a bit faster than him on iRacing. So what you've got, Brad, is this the worst-case scenario where you've got an inexperienced Billy racer like me who's got a bit of pace around you? Um, I don't know whether that's worst case. It's certainly one of the worst <laughs> cases because what you've essentially got is apart from the speed differential between the two cars, you've also got um, unknown reactions. You've got some unpredictability thrown in. So in this particular example, which I know we're not going to go into too much depth about because the listeners can't see what we're talking about, although I know we've all poured over the replay lots and lots of times. <laughs> well, in this particular some, example, some angles of the replay, I did beg for more angles, but no one had them. Uh, but suffice to say, I'm definitely innocent, but do carry on. Yeah, in, in this example... You, for example, were actually the faster driver over a lap um, 
yeah, but by far the the lesser experienced driver. No, that's fair. Um, so you have a, an overtaking driver because Gene Z was going for a move despite you generally being quicker than him over a lap. Yeah. You've got an overtaking driver who's assuming a certain amount of um, knowledge or uh, or knowledge of the etiquette, um, the un- the unwritten rules which we're talking about. Yeah. And you've got you who and you had a specific idea in your mind of what you thought you were allowed to do yeah. and what your reaction should be. And you effectively turned into a corner that um, that Alex was expecting you to not turn in until he allowed you to. Um, he was up the inside with a yeah. small overlap and then a bigger overlap under braking. And you turned towards the apex whilst he was still there. And we've had a long discussion about this, but that does bring us on to that specific situation in general, where there's a car on the inside of another one. It's, it's actually, it's a very common situation where yes i had overtaken him on the previous corner he had a run into the next corner so he was the overtaking car but it's a it's a very common situation where you have an overtaking car that has found the inside line because generally that's where the gap is most overtakes are done down the inside aren't they yeah there are obviously examples Mm. where that doesn't happen um there's some there's there's often some cool outside overtakes but in general yeah the high ground is the inside even if you've only got a small overlap, quite often you'll come out of the corner ahead if you've got the the inside line to a corner. So one thing that struck me, like in, I don't know, the 70 or 80 times this replay got posted to our private chat while it was being uh, thoroughly assessed. I don't know. I could put it that way. I suppose. Flame war. Is that when this started and they and Alex had been around the outside of the first turn, when this started, he was an entire lane over. And what I would describe as barely alongside. But by time the turn happened, he was, as you said, right up the inside and almost level. And yeah. it seems to me that's a very similar situation to being on a highway where you're in the inside lane, there's someone in the outside lane, and then there's a center lane that you can both technically move into. And I always was taught to be very, very cautious in moving in that. Is it a similar thing when you're racing? Yes, it is. You definitely don't just move into those empty lanes without knowing what's in them. Um, so it's not just a case of you blindly will sweep across the track when you're in a, a fight with someone um, because you, yeah. you need to know that you're not going to hit them because you could you could take them out, you could take you out or both of you. Um, so yeah, you need to be aware, but you're absolutely entitled to use that space. And effectively in your situation, mm-hmm. it was whoever did it first would be the one that's allowed to do it. You could have equally, so Spanners being the car on the outside, could have equally moved into the middle of the track. You've got two cars kind of on either side of the track with an empty space in the middle. But there was no need for you to do that at that particular point. Okay, so we'll go into kind of the art of attacking and and defending. But this particular example is a good start point. Now, there is a disagreement because I think I left him a bit of space. He thinks I was going for the apex and being a bit narrow. Let's. I think the more useful example to go for is let's say... I was just taking the normal racing line into uh, into the apex. And he's behind me with his nose just in front. So in that situation, he's kind of, he's thinking he's got the right to manage when we turn. And we, we see this all the time. The car in front is thinking, I'm probably far enough ahead. If I just go for the apex, car behind's probably going to duck out. Now in this situation, which is one we see over and over again, he's up the inside, I've turned, I thought I'm going to leave him enough room, I thought there's not going to be contact. He's made contact with me as I'm turning and he is still continuing his path because he's slightly behind. He's got a bit further to go until he gets to his turning point to get to the apex. We can't occupy the same space 
and and we collide. Now, that's a very typical situation. Generally, you would blame the outside car who has turned in on the the inside car. But how Matt described the positioning is different as well. And we'll get into this a bit later too, because let's say he was a whole car length behind to start with. He can brake later and appear side to side. So in this one very simple common scenario, we've got loads of our our um our well of incidents is in F1 to pick from. And I think people vary a lot over who they say is to blame. And you, what you'll hear is these two phrases used. The driver who's turning in will say, he took me out, he hit me from behind. He punted me. The driver on the inside will say, you turned in on me. And and both of those could technically be correct. But in in general, what we're saying is that the onus is on the outside car to not move into the lane of the inside car until the inside car allows them to. Um, so for people who, I mean, we're not using our hands, although you did the typical race driver thing a moment ago I'm on the live stream hands. here of using Sorry. your hands to describe. It's what every race driver will ever do um, when they're describing to their opponent why they were right. Um, but yeah, the car that has an overlap on the inside, um, you, you mentioned his nose was ahead. You mean he was ahead of your rear wheel or, yes, or just right. level yeah. with your rear wheel yeah. around there. Um, it's up to him to tell you when you can turn in because he's occupying the inside lane, the high ground. You can't turn in whilst he's there. So until he actually runs you out of track, until you get to the edge of right to the edge, the grass, um, you're not allowed to turn in. If he then continues to try and go further and push you even wider, then you can you kind of got a bit of right to do what you want at that point. You can start turning in. He's then moving into your lane. You've run out of lanes to move into yourself. He's trying to then go into yours. Um, but yeah, in general, we're saying the car on the inside is the one that allows you to turn in when when they decide. And the further of an overlap they've got, yeah. the more right they have to to dictate that. Oh, see, now that's, saying- in- that's interesting, but I'll stop you there because at some point in our rules, we are going to talk about the difference of right you have depending on how much you have a nose in. Because there'll be certain situations, I'm sure, where a nose counts for more than in other situations but yes yeah but for, for, and, and can yeah. i can i quickly before i forget just give you an example of when a nose counts for more a nose counts for more when it's been there for a while if he had if a car has a nose alongside your rear wheel for several seconds and you're in kind of a free fall together you're you're moving at the same rate and then you turn in well you should have known it was there you know the nose has been there for some time if that nose is the thing that appears just before you get to the apex that's when we move into the realm that this is now a punt. They, you, you wouldn't be expected to know that nose was suddenly going to get there. But if more, if a more substantial amount of their car gets there, if half a car is alongside you before you get to the apex, then they've got that right back again. So there is, there is a grey area, but it's not that grey. You can kind of work out based on what we're talking about now when someone's in the right, when someone's in the wrong. There's a small grey area that will always be there. So if we take this to um, F1 examples because our friends in the chat room are starting to accuse me of doing a whole podcast just to settle my beef with Gene Z, uh, which is like only 79% true. Okay. But there are four Formula One examples I think we're going to look at. Um, and one of them is, is m- much more closely related to the example we've been using. And in retrospect, would have been the better one to kick off with, not just a practice iRacing session. But uh, so it's Ocon Verstappen where Ocon unlapped himself in Brazil. Um, That's one of the examples we'll probably look at. I think we'll also look at the Vettel uh, alleged double move 
on Lewis Hamilton because it shows what you can and can't do on the straights and into the braking zone. Uh, can the- I throw in one more? Yes. Um, the one that I sent you guys on WhatsApp, which was um, Ricardo on Bottas at Shanghai yeah, last uh, year. Yeah, I early believe. on in the season, wasn't it, where he, he dives down the inside. It was when they had made the correct pit call in a safety car, isn't it? And they'd come out on fresh tyres yeah. and Verstappen ended up... Uh, Binning it into something. He, he ended up losing it somehow. Oh, he hit Vettel, didn't he? In the end, he hit yeah. Vettel and, uh, and Ricciardo did have a big overspeed on Bottas, oh, but yeah. ended up getting past. And now I've forgotten the last example that I wanted to oh, use. Oh, sorry. Ah, it's okay. So who did we have? Let's- that, that Verstappen on Vettel is also another good one. Um, because that's, uh, it's almost an example of, of how, how not to do it. And, uh, anyway, sorry, carry on. An even better example would be the two Toro Rossos taking each other out <laughs> while attempting to pass on team orders. But I think they were actually trying not to crash. That's what made that one worse. I think they yeah. actually agreed uh, what they were doing. Uh, yeah, so we've got Bottas uh, being overtaken by Ricardo, the Hamilton one, and the Ocon Verstappen. All right, well, I can't remember the other one for now, but, but I'm sure it will come up. But let's start with the Ocon Verstappen one. Let's, let's forget for now, because I think Nick summed it up brilliantly at the time, where uh, Ottmeyer Schaffnauer was blaming Max Verstappen and uh, Nick Numbers Alexander on this podcast was said, uh, yeah, but can you not also see that your driver kind of ruined the race by taking the leader out? I think we kind of we accept that there is um, a difference when you are a backmarker and when you're a leader. But for now, let's concentrate on that as a pure racing incident, just looking at the track position, because that situation it was actually reasonably similar to me and Jeansy on iRacing, except maybe not as clear-cut, because obviously ours was clear-cut. It was Jeansy's fault. But what about the Ocon-Verstappen situation? So this is an example where the context makes a lot of difference to your initial reaction, and, and we can go into that in a moment. Let's um, go into but, how much you the, yelled at me at first, Brad. Yeah, so so I absolutely, on the face of it, just watching on live TV and not seeing a, a replay of of how they got into those positions... I instantly thought, oh my goodness, that Force India has just hit the leader whilst he was being lapped. Not paying attention, outbreaked himself, whatever. So, this, it, so this is without me having seen the yeah. detailed replay. So, it, so we of assumed him up. that the Red Bull had just caught up with the back marker, was trying to take around the outside of turn two at the bottom of the hill, and that Ocon had just kept his nose in and wiped him out. Um, there was a very brief flash because uh, there was loads of pit stops going on, and I just happened to catch the fact that Ocon was catching I think he caught up something like four seconds in in a couple of laps because his tyres had switched on and Verstappen was just out of the pits. So yeah, you saw that big overspeed and he came up around the outside of turn one. So all right, in context now then, so leaving aside the back marker issue for a minute, how do you see the lane positioning? Um so for most of the move, most of the the whole incident, everything was fine. Um they're side by side um, and nobody is trying to encroach into the space that the other car is occupying. The only time that something goes wrong is, is the moment this lane system we're talking about is violated is when Verstappen tries to move across towards the inside curb um, on the right-hand side, um, which is you know, effectively the, the apex of turn two, and Ocon is there. So he drives effectively into a lane which is occupied, and they make contact. Now, we can discuss, and we have discussed in the past, um, whether it was sensible for Ocon to be there, um, you know, a, a lapped car, et cetera, et cetera. But on a pure technically, who was in the correct position, who drove onto the correct piece of track, analyzing that as a racing incident, um, it's, it's clear that Verstappen is to blame for the contact. Um, Ocon is, is keeping a consistent tight position on the inside. 
Yeah, I, for me, I have to agree with you, with the exception that the context of him being lapped changes my opinion about who should have done what. And that's something that's an opinion, but that I don't have any basis in actually growing up and racing about. So once we get done with this part of it, I would love to hear your thoughts on the context of Ocon being lapped and whether or not he sensibly should have been doing what he did at that point. We'll we'll definitely go on to that. So I'm just looking at a screenshot and I'll I'll post it on my Twitter account at Spanners Ready or at Missed Apex F1. So Ocon is slightly behind. So his front wheel is behind Max Verstappen's front wheel as well. It's interesting because Verstappen, uh, sorry, Ocon is all the way over to the white line. So his right wheel is on the right-hand side of the track. On the but he could he could go nearly another car width over and have his left wheel still still on and his right wheels over the curb. Now, if I was to say to you, Brad, well, why didn't Ocon see that there was more of a gap and, and use more of the road? Surely Verstappen's fine because he knows that Ocon can legally still stay on the road and avoid him. So all that Ocon, all that Verstappen's done is just take up a reasonable amount of space. Um, what I'd say is. Ocon isn't obliged to do that. He's he's following the shape of the track. Um, and if he'd used more curb, he might then have understeered into the side of Verstappen slightly later in the corner. It's He wasn't expecting to have his nose chopped off in that situation, effectively. He's expecting to be, you know, fought robustly, but given racing room, as you'd hear the, the term people would use, you know, given enough room to exist, effectively, without without having a driver move into his space, into his lane. So, yes, he might have been able to use more curb. Um, Matt's brought up in the past that when when we're kind of formulating our missed apex um, rules set, that the point at which you're not allowed to squeeze someone anymore is, is the white line. I'd argue that there are certain places on track where, uh, and that would be a good example of it, where pretty much always uh, the natural flow for the driver on the inside is to use a bit, quite a bit of curb. So I'd say in that particular corner, Verstappen's fine to to squeeze him up to the amount of curb he was using, but it's not up to Ocon to move any further, you know, to turn unnaturally tight um, to to stay away from Verstappen. He's just not expecting him to come across that quickly. But it's interesting the point at which that deal is made. Go on, Matt, you first. Well, I was going to say this gets at the heart of what I think a lot of Formula One collisions come from. And if you watch WEC or IMSA or any others where you have professional drivers and amateur drivers on the same course. A lot of times it just comes down to people expecting different things. Very clearly, Verstappen expected Ocon to back off because he was a lapped driver. And very clearly, Ocon was under orders to pass Verstappen because he had fresh tires and needed to make as much time as possible. They just expected each other to do exactly the opposite. And the result is a collision. I see. One thing to remember is that in almost all of these kind of situations, neither driver actually wants contact. Um, contact is go in, in a prototype series. We're not talking about touring cars, for example, where quite often they do intend contact. In, in Formula One, they don't want to actually make contact with the other car. They're, they're very likely to s- sustain race-ending damage or certainly race-affecting damage. So it, if they do make contact, there's been a miscommunication. Someone's assumed something about the other driver that they've got wrong. Someone or maybe both of them have, have misjudged something. I think you've made um, an interesting point I want to touch on where you said, if Max Verstappen did what I did, what I suggested, and leave Ocon only room to keep his left tyres on on the track in turn two in Interlagos, then Ocon was likely to understeer into him. Well, now then, in fact, 
Ocon did kind of understeer. Could it be in that situation that he wasn't expecting Verstappen to come across tightly and therefore he had more room and therefore has understeered into him? I think that's a possibility as well. However, here's a situation, and I've remembered the second example now. Uh, the fourth example that I was trying to recall before was Rosberg uh, Hamilton. Now, I know I hardly ever bring up Rosberg Hamilton in Austria where they went all the way out to the outside. But let's say in that situation, Ocon, instead of turning, instead of really trying to stay tight on that apex, instead he goes, do you know what? I want to go all the way out to the exit of turn two and I'm just going to point my car in that direction and Max has just got to follow me all the way round to the left. If they're side by side, my understanding now of you talking about the, the inside car having kind of all the power, on entry, did he have to turn right at all or could he have just gone all the way out to the to the edge of the circuit? I think this is quite a specific example because you've got a left-hander immediately turning into a right-hander. So I'd need to look at a particular point in the corner. But no, if you're talking about on the exit of that right-hander, is that what I'm understanding? So Ocon is on the inside. Well, even even the the entry to the right-hander, so Ocon is on the right side, Max is on the left. At no point is Ocon actually obliged to turn into the apex. Um, so I think there's this slight difference between our earlier example of you and Jeansy and this example. In our earlier example in iRacing, you're going straight on a straight uh, up against a white line on one side. When you're actually in a corner, if you're both, if both cars are on a consistent trajectory, so kind of in a lane, think of the oval example where the lanes follow the shape of the track. Um, Ocon doesn't have the right to just drive towards Verstappen and expect him to move all the way out to the outside. That That isn't the example. He's only allowed to move into that space if Verstappen isn't occupying it. He, Verstappen is there. So in the same way Verstappen can't move across towards Ocon, Ocon also can't move across towards Verstappen. Does that make sense? If you're on a straight um, or on an approach to a corner or even in a corner where the outside car is on the outside, as in at the edge of the track, then Ocon, in that example, yeah. would absolutely have the right to move all the way up to the outside and only let only leave room for Verstappen a car's width. But that's because Verstappen would already be at the outside. You can't move someone over there unless they are already heading in that direction. Does that make sense? So if I've, they're not already yeah. heading that way, you're just going to drive into them. So I've got a clarifying question then with the lane system, because I feel like, tell me if I'm wrong, I feel like we're going to keep coming back to the Philpot lane system, and it is going to become one day an official FIA rule. So this lane system, we we covered what happens on the oval when you go into the straight. Now, do the lanes follow the track? So if we were four wide at Interlagos, does that mean the inside car, you know, stays right tucked in and uh and then the outside car goes right around the outside? Or does it follow lanes based around the racing line? Does that make sense? Okay. Does it follow the yep. shape of the track all the way round? Or do you, if there's two of you, you go, well, there's the racing line. So the outside car is obviously he can go outside. He can't go all the way to the apex because there's another car there, but he can go all the way outside. The inside car can't start all the way on the outside because there's a car there. He can go to the apex and then he can go all the way out less a car's width on the exit. So does it follow the racing line or does it follow like a traffic highway system? So it depends what the other car is doing. Um, if you are both heading on a trajectory towards the apex parallel, you know, effectively parallel. I know you're curving and you're going around a corner, but, you know, on a consistent line together, then the lane system is in the shape of the racing line. Um, if you are, if you are following the shape of the track together, then it follows the shape of the track. Um, does that make sense? So there's a little bit of consent involved there. 
if you're both heading towards the apex together, and I don't mean you're converging on the same point, I mean you're side yeah. by side, so someone is going to end up one car width away from the apex, but you're both consenting to head in that direction. The car on the inside then can't move into the lane next to it because even though that's the shape of the track, there's a car there and you're both heading on a on an obvious path together. So, But if you were, if the car on the inside was to follow the shape of the track, so say this Rosberg and Hamilton incident at Austria we're talking about, where Rosberg was driving straight yeah. and Hamilton then turned across towards the... He, he turned in late, but there was still track remaining that he, he could have used. Um, in that instance, Rosberg was saying, I'm the car on the inside. I'm dictating that we're carrying on straight until the edge of the track begins to turn. So that's where it's, that's where it's a different um, scenario. However, this is an extra factor that we haven't spoken about at all. Um, by by forcing the driver to move, by forcing the outside driver to go onto that um, edge part of the track that they might not normally be using, that's where you get dirt, marbles, all that kind of thing. You may well then disadvantage the outside driver enough that they actually have to back off and slow down. And at that point, your your strategy there has worked very well. You've not only forced them wide and you've kept the high ground on the inside, you've also then got dirt on their tires, made them have to slow down earlier than they wanted to. So. You know, there's other factors involved as well. These things are happening in real time, different situations, different track conditions. So although we're talking about um, kind of geometry, really, uh, for the most part, like the parts of the track you're allowed on and the shape of the line you're allowed to dictate, um, there is also the surface, which is, is not uniform. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So, I can't leave Ocon Verstappen without asking you, as a racer who has raced in multi-class series and some series of varying ability, inevitably when you, you know, get on a racetrack with the missed apex people, you are, you know, you're the leader, but then people will want to get racy with you. So you've been in that Verstappen situation, possibly more than you've been in the Ocon situation. Uh, if you've got a, a faster car, it's quite rare. But if you've got a faster car coming and overtaking you at a rate of knots, you know, what's your attitude? Do you get a bit kind of hierarchical about it? 
Um, so it, it would very much depend on the situation. And, and I have to say, I can't think of any examples where this has happened to me because as with the Formula One example, as with Ocon and Verstappen, this is quite a rare thing. Um, it's quite unusual for a car that is a lap down to have enough of a pace advantage, even with fresher tyres, to be able to actually overtake the leader, you know, uh, unlap themselves. So this is quite a rare thing. And I haven't come across it too much. But here's what I would do uh, if if it did happen. It depends whether I'm in a, a close battle for the lead in which I cannot afford to lose any time at all. If that was the case, I might be a bit more punchy, a bit more Verstappen, a little bit more entitled to that apex, even though I'm violating the lane system and moving across to the inside because I've got no time to burn. Alternatively, if I had a big lead or if we're in an endurance race where time isn't necessarily of the essence right now, then you'd be a lot more circumspect and you'd say, okay, this guy's obviously coming in a bit hot. He obviously has uh, an idea of, of overtaking me. Let's just get out of his way. There are I've got bigger fish to fry than this guy right now. So it's very, very situational. It depends a lot. Obviously, the racing I do tends to be endurance racing. Um, and I'm very used to allowing faster GT3 cars through yeah. um, and, and trying not to lose any time whilst that's happening. Um, but Try, then once again, I'm not in the same fight as them. Trying not to skid across the grass and then and then hit the GT3 car in the side. There's a GT3 cup car. <laughs> You hit one Porsche and people don't let you forget it, do they? Do they, do they call you Brad the Wall Builder? No. Uh, no, that's a terrible joke that we definitely can't share here on the podcast. Um, you touched on something there, which is uh, <laughs> getting to know the driver you're overtaking or understanding that kind of driver. So, for example, now... I will know that if the jeans is on the inside of me, he has a tendency to miss his breaking point and ram into the side of me. Therefore, I will give him a bit more room and, and bide my time. And I understand that scenario more. I can be patient and try and catch him at another time. Uh, so understanding the character of, of the drivers around you, so important. Yeah, and, and not just the character, the character in that moment, you know, in that situation. So with the whole Verstappen knock-on incident, it is a great one to talk about because there's there's so many different things involved. I'm sure Verstappen's mindset was, well, he's a lap down. It's up to him to get out of my way. Even though technically it's not up to him to just jump out of the way and disappear. In Verstappen's mind, he's the leader and and his the path he wants to take takes precedent over anyone else, especially someone who's a lap down or, or very, very nearly a lap down. Um, and I've certainly been in that mindset myself. I want I want backmarkers to just get out of the way as quick as possible. One of my pet hates is actually backmarkers racing the leaders. Um, but but also, it might have been sensible for him to just um, think that it, it doesn't matter that much. That one particular moment just there doesn't matter. And think maybe, you know, just pay attention to what Ocon's own situation might have been. You do, you do need to know the different drivers. And those guys have got some beef anyway, haven't they? <laughs> Long-standing one goes back to prior championships, as I recall. But if we're talking, uh, since we're talking about context and other drivers, if you had been in Spanner's car, would you would you have expected that from Jeansy or not? I'd have expected it from anyone. If there was a car up my inside who was looking to attack me, I, my sole focus on the turn into that corner would have been watching my left mirror and only moving across as far as I could without encroaching on their space. And and if and so, if it means me going all the way around the outside on a wall of death, so be it. Um, but, but either that or getting to the inside before you've allowed that slight nose overlap. But, but yeah, I, I would have expected the, the car on the inside to try and dive up for sure. And assuming, you know, this track, 
this is maybe a little bit master classy, but just for the purposes of examples, had you stayed outside enough to let him round the inside, wouldn't that have then put you on the inside going into the next turn where you could have indeed made his life utterly miserable? I think the next turn is actually a right-hander. So it might have actually been a case of staying on the outside all the way around the edge. If you could have stayed level with him, would have put you on the inside. Um, but there's other examples where, you know, if if Jeansy was coming in super hot, Spanner seems to think he was outbreaking himself and he was actually going deeper than he wanted to. If that was the case, it might have been wise to break earlier than normal and slot back up the inside of him. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, yeah. a, that's a technique you would judge based on how out of control or how quick you think the inside driver is is coming up the inside. So that would be very much like the Rosberg-Hamilton battle where they had the different tires and Rosberg was up the inside, Hamilton brake late and cut underneath him and wound up taking the position from him. Bahrain, uh, was it? 2014. Bahrain. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, that, that exact kind of thing. And, and a way to prevent that, so in Spanner's situation in this, in this race with Jeansy, and once again, I appreciate a lot of people won't have the replay in their mind. But Spanners was all the way to the outside approaching the next corner, ready to take a good line in, you know, a yeah. fast line. But there was, for a lot of the straight preceding that, there was quite a lot of room to the inside. Jeansy was on the, the left-hand side of the track. Had Spanners moved across and been the one dictating how much space Jeansy had, Jeansy couldn't have gone into the corner, um, barrel on in really fast or, or faster than he intended without then hitting the side of Spanners. So Spanners effectively would be neutering the entry speed Van Gene could take into that corner. And he may well have just had to back out of it um, because it, he was too tight. So there is there is a proactive thing Spanners could have done to to stop. If, if you imagine Jeans is allowed to use any lanes he wants, provided there's no one there. If Spanners is all the way on the outside and turns in relatively late, that's allowing Jeansy to come in too hot, go across a couple of extra lanes and still legally get the high ground on the inside. If he was pressed up against the inside of the track, if Spanners had pressed him up against the track, the inside down the straight, Jeansy wouldn't have had the allowance of moving into extra lanes. So he couldn't have gone into the corner quicker than he intended to or quick enough to, to get the overlap with Spanners and would have had to back out, you know, break earlier. Does that make any sense? It's kind of, look, you're it, just, it you're stopping the problem before it actually happens. It, it, it does. And look, um, for this episode, I, I did say to the guys, look, let's just talk a little bit about the dicing and the wheel-to-wheel contact. Not quite sure how much of it makes sense, but we're feeling our way through it and we will we'll do more of these. And I didn't think we were going to spend so long on on one example, even though we're talking about me and Jeansy, really, we're talking about, you know, F1. We've we've covered the examples of Rosberg Hamilton and the Verstappen Ocon one is is a very good particular example. Uh, but from an amateur driver point of view, this leads us on to the next situation I wanted to cover because we've talked about when the cars are side by side. Of course, sometimes a car just appears next to you. So I'm in my shed with a VR headset on, and it's very, very cool. Now then, uh, we'll see how long it is before Mrs. Spanners makes me sell it. But uh, I'm looking over my shoulder, and I, I can see him. I can see him there. I can see his bonnet is, you know, somewhere behind my my front wheel. I'm looking over. Initially, I'm thinking, yeah, as long as I leave a bit of space, as long as I'm not too aggressive, I, I can probably, I can probably turn in. Now, at some point, then. He then appears much closer to me because he's, he's, he's braked later, either because he's gone deeper into the corner or because he's better on the brakes than I am. He suddenly appears there. So I lack the skill level to then just suddenly react to that. That's happened before I even know it. A top racing driver, I assume, 
would have a better idea, have a better bit of awareness. So your F1 driver with somebody outbreaking them down the inside would suddenly be very aware that a car has appeared on their left-hand side and would react. Yes. Uh, and they they adjust what they were doing. If they'd begun an intended maneuver, so say they'd begun to turn in, expecting the inside driver to to turn in as well at the same point um, and, and, you know, provide space for that turn, but it hadn't happened. They would then just react in real time. They would, they'd notice that the car was doing something different to what they expected, adjust their reaction accordingly and, you know, straighten the wheel or, or wait a little bit longer to make that turn, you know, decide what the best course of action is to limit the damage. I mean, I don't mean physical damage. I mean, you know, the, the damage in terms of loss of position and to get a better exit than them. You know, the focus switches from, uh, okay, got to stop this person from getting overlap to we want to stop this person actually getting past. And then if it looks like all is lost and they are getting past, the focus then switches to how can I get as much of an advantage on the exit out of this situation as possible so I can come back at them at the next corner. Um, but they're definitely very aware of what's going on and all they're doing, they're calculating what the best response to the situation they find themselves in is. And normally they've planned the next one in advance. Jeansy was very vocal in saying that uh, you assumed he'd got something wrong, but he was actually planning several corners in advance based on whatever you happened to do. Sorry, I was uh, just recovering from being a very ill person. And as I said, I'm being incredibly brave. Remember that. So what happens when when somebody appears right at the apex? So l- let's move on now to the Bottas versus Ricciardo situation. Yes. So uh, Ricciardo had a, a big overspeed. He came from a long way back and Bottas, he was heading all the way into the corner. Now, if no one can remember this race, this was Shanghai. Uh, The Mercedes were on much older tyres. The Red Bulls had taken advantage of a safety car or virtual safety car, I believe. Uh, And then they'd come out. Yeah, in fact, Hamilton was the last car, the first car to have the opportunity to pit and didn't and stayed out this was when we were accused did he moan to the team about it <laughs> yeah. I just i can't yeah. remember but no no he did he, he said he said how did we end up here that's his normal thing he's quite passive aggressive on the radio these days because i think he's aware that he gets accused of being whiny so he, what he'll do is he'll ask a question and it's it's very british actually it's the very kind no i'm just asking a question you know um how did we end up behind these guys or, or they'll go did, did you did you know the date the report was due you know, it's a typical kind of management style. So, so, so you were aware of when the report was due, yet, yet that date has passed and there doesn't seem to be a report. Uh, and that's very much how Lewis Hamilton is, is managing it from the cockpit. So yeah, so what we've got is then, uh, Verstappen ends up clouting into, uh, Vettel on the hairpin. Ricciardo is fighting for the win now. He comes up on the inside of Bottas, big overspeed. At this point though, Bottas is heading directly for the apex of the corner. When all of a sudden, Daniel Ricciardo comes in and finds a gap from somewhere. Arrives on the scene. Yeah, so this is a great example to dispel the myth that um, if there's no car alongside you, you have all every right to just take the racing line or drive straight to the apex. And if there's then contact, well, it's their fault because... They weren't there when you started turning. Yeah. Now, this is a great example to dispel that. Right, right. Okay, good. Because I would, I would have before that, and I'm looking in your eyes and going, I don't think that, but I definitely would have, if there was contact, thought it's a lunge because when they started breaking and turning, Ricciardo wasn't there. So Bottas is planning his move and it's not his fault that, that Danny's just suddenly appeared there. And, and you do hear people talking about sticking a nose in, having a punt, and going into a disappearing wedge. So you're going to now dispel that. 
yeah, so as far as I'm concerned, the only time that any of this matters is at the point of contact. So at the point the two cars effectively will hit each other. So if there is no car there right now in real time, you're allowed to move across into that space. But if a car suddenly appears there whilst there was still a gap, i.e. you're not halfway into the lane and they knock you out of it, if there's still a lane just about there and they appear, as Ricardo did, um, they've got every right to it, provided they don't then understeer or, or run wide out of that lane mid-corner back into yours, which which could happen. But let, let's just run through exactly what happened in this situation before we talk about what could have happened and okay. how it was right or wrong. So Bottas, uh, as you said, is on worst tyres. He sees Ricardo is catching him up. Ricardo is a long way back. So you can see Bottas is kind of covering the inside line, but with a car's width still to the inside. He's, cur- he's at that point trying to discourage Ricardo from making a move. He's not actually actively defending hard. He thinks Ricardo's too far back to actually go for the move. So he leaves a- enough space that him, Bottas, will still be able to get some kind of a decent entry to the corner. Um, you know, he's given himself a car's width to turn in instead of being pressed up tight against the inside of a hairpin. But there's still just enough room for a car to slip through. Ricardo, on this fresh tyres, decides there's a gap there, I'm going for it, and comes in with a very late break, like you say, massive overspeed, and dives down the inside. So he slips through the gap. Bottas doesn't cover it in time. He doesn't cover off that lane in time. Now, at this point, if Bottas had managed to stay side by side with him at the apex of the corner, it didn't happen. He was he, he was miles behind. But had he managed to stay side by side and left Ricardo a car's width, Ricardo would have understeered clearly wide into the side of Bottas, would have been his fault. Would have been as it Ricardo's happens, fault. Would have been Ricardo's fault oh, okay. because he would have been moving across, understeering into the side of Bottas. But as it happens, he came from very far back, but he braked so much later and so much extra speed. Although he ran wide at the apex, he was already past Bottas. Yeah. Bottas, did, he had no overlap with Bottas. It was about maybe half a meter or so margin. It wasn't a very big margin, but he judged it absolutely to perfection. He came in quick enough that he got the job done and he was always going too fast to make the corner accurately. But it didn't matter because he'd actually got past Bottas before they both arrived at the apex. Which is almost a shame for us, although that's what made that move look so spectacular. Yeah, you're right. The angle that he came in was was so shallow that you needed that overspeed to pull it off. So after Matt comes in, I think it will be interesting to then do some what what ifs. Well, this is actually a what if. I'm, I'm wanting some clarification on this because it's clear to me the what you're referencing here. But if I was Botas headed to the apex and I'm Ricardo coming up, if there's contact at the apex and I've gotten there first, my front wheels are ahead of your front wheels, but we smash into each other. Are you then saying that that would be Ricardo or the driver in Ricardo's position fault? So if Bottas has already begun to enter that inside lane, as in the the part of the track that is from zero to one car width away from the apex, if Bottas has already started to enter that portion of track and then Ricardo arrives there, yes, it's Ricardo's fault. He's trying to move into a part of the track where there's already a car. Okay, so we all know that on a straight, the Formula One definition of alongside is my front wheels and your rear wheels. So well, I, I thought it was any portion of the front wing, actually. Ah, now so then, okay. Less well, than the front I'll, I'll clarify this. Under the FIA rules, it, it, it does mention this. However, frustratingly for people trying to play along and play the game of you are the steward, 
the rules of racing in F1 seem to be exclusively limited to the straights and they don't cover the corners, you know, the bit where the racing happens. So the rule is for anyone who, who's, who doesn't know is that you can, you can move all the way across the track, but you have to leave a car's width. So if there's a car to the side of you, you cannot just drive him off the track like Schumacher did to Massa. Was it? Was it Schumacher Massa or Schumacher Barrichello? Barrichello. Barrichello. Massa Barrichello. Pretty, pretty similar. Okay. So um, in that case, it says, well, how much of the car has to be alongside? The rules say a significant portion of the car. And then it says, for the avoidance of any doubt, a significant part of the car is any part of the wing. So when you hear that language, any significant part of the car, it is really just any part of the car. It's almost unnecessary language. So you can move all the way to, to block someone. You can crowd someone all the way off the racing line out to the far side of the track, uh, away from the racing line on a straight. Uh, and then that guy can come all the way back as well, but to take up his racing line. So you can only make one move. You can defend all the way across and then you can come back. That's the only moves you can make. And when you come back, you also have to make sure that you leave racing room. But that, that's but the for, only thing that is clarified in the rules at all. But for clarity, when you say you can crowd them all the way up to the edge of the track, that relies on their consent of moving towards yes. the edge of the track. Yeah. If they go dead straight down the straight and you move across towards them and they continue dead straight and you continue to move towards them and you still make contact, that's then the car moving across its fault. So you're only allowed to crowd them to the edge of the track if yeah. they go, okay, you're coming yeah. across towards me. I'll move out of your way across to the edge. They then have to stop at the edge because otherwise it's grass. You're then legally not allowed to come across any further, but that just seems to be common sense. Okay, actually, let, let's make this let's make this a little clearer. I've just realised I'm not going to edit it. I've just realised I made an error with that rule. The significant part of the car is actually correct, but let's use the example of when Nico Rosberg screwed up an engine mode in Barcelona in 2016, I think, when both Mercedes ended up coming together. So what you had was Rosberg ahead on the straight after turn three, Hamilton coming up the right-hand side. Um, at this point, there's no part of Hamilton's car alongside, and Rosberg comes all the way across to, to cut him off. Now, if we pretend that Hamilton didn't get any of his, his car level, because I think he did, uh, then Rosberg can block all the way across to the other side. When Rosberg wants to then take up the racing line, he then can't go all the way back over to the left. He actually has to leave a car's width before when he goes over to the left. So that's the rule I was trying to explain earlier. Got it slightly wrong. As it happened, Hamilton did actually have a little bit of his nose left in when Rosberg came over. But he must have had, otherwise they wouldn't have made contact. Well, ra well, what happened was rather than rather than stay there and just let Rosberg come across him and crash, Hamilton actually went onto the grass a little bit, lost control. And then kept ah. his foot in to definitely make sure that once he'd lost control, he took Rosberg out with him. I'm convinced so, he did that. So what you're saying actually is Hamilton was too nice yes. in that situation. He, he, Had he just continued dead straight yeah. and not tried to get out of the way of Rosberg, it would have Rosberg been, would have yeah. just driven into the side of him, would have been entirely Rosberg's fault. Yeah, so Rosberg's There's, rear wheels would have hit Hamilton's wheel and it would have been yeah. very obvious that it had so been his fault. it became this kind of shared responsibility. Yeah. They're both very sheepish. Because it was actually Hamilton coming back on the track, having tried to get out of the way that caused the yeah, actual... Yeah, so, so, so once he got out of the way and he was on the grass, he was completely out of control. I think if he'd have just lifted and tried to just bring his car under control, he doesn't collect Rosberg. He knows he's in trouble. He keeps his foot in because he thinks this is definitely Rosberg's fault. I'm going to keep my foot in and he makes sure he collects him into turn four. 
that is my that is how I read that situation. Uh, but yeah, no, it's interesting. You're right. So he consents. So if you've got two cars in the middle of the track and one starts moving over, the car in front can hold his ground. But in F1, where your nose is so delicate, the temptation is to jump out of the way. Yeah, and and a lot of moves where someone does the outside driver does just take the apex despite there being an initial overlap of the inside car a lot of those moves are okay they work for the outside car because of that fragility of the front wing the fact the inside driver does think better of it and go well even though technically i'm allowed to be here it's unwise for me to stay here so i'm gonna break my nose so the best example of that is um uh, brita the british empire i can't remember what britas's first name is do you remember that comedy in the 90s i used to love that and um, it was Chris. It was Chris Barry, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. So basically, he would step out into a zebra crossing and assume the car was going to stop because it's his right of way. And then the last scene of that episode was him in a full body cast, looking up and going, "But it was my right of way." But you're still, you know, you're still there in a body cast. So a lot of it is, yes, it might be, it might be the other guy's fault, but you've still ruined your own race. And I think that's how people like Hamilton, Verstappen, Senna build this reputation as a real hard driver because in these situations they make the other guy choose Uh, do you want to be right or do you want to still be in the race yeah and you can even take it to the point where you say um a driver like Verstappen might think long term and think okay in this situation I'm going to lose my nose but I'm in 15th place doesn't really matter you know when he's at Toro Rosso for example but what will happen is next time we go wheel to wheel that driver that's chopping my nose off is going to know I'm staying here So, okay, in the short term, I've broken my nose in this race, but I'm going to build a long-term reputation that I am staying on the inside. If you try and squeeze me, you're also going to have damage. And eventually you get to the point where people are wary of you. They're wary of Verstappen (laughs) and they won't do that. Um, You know, that's the other. So there's even even a longer term. When we're talking about gray areas or, or different situations, scenarios, context, there's the context of, you know, your career over the course of your career, you get this reputation, as you say, for doing a certain thing, regardless of whether or not it's technically technically correct or wise or not in a certain situation. Do you think Gene will think twice the next time he's got a nose in front? Do you think he'll think, oh, here we go, Spanners, he's just going to chop me off? That's certainly a, <laughs> a good example of where it might um, have that effect, especially if it matters, if, if there's a race that actually counts <laughs> for something. And that's another thing. In your example, you guys were kind of in a fun race that didn't really matter. There yeah, were points at there stake. Was- um, we didn't carry the way, did we? Enjoyment. Yeah, there was a lot of but, personal pride. But if that was for the championship in a certain race, you might get away with, even though this wasn't your intention, you might have got away with your just turning across towards the apex and letting Jeansy decide whether or not there's an accident. Yeah, I was going to say, in my case, it seems to have worked very well, at least with uh, certain drivers on the iRacing circuit. <laughs> but we've not gotten back to answer my original question, which is a very complicated and nuanced one about that inside lane on the approach to the apex. Yeah. So if I'm in lane two, you're more than a car links back in lane one. I slow and I'm coming across to the apex, but I've already crossed into lane one as yeah. you're trying to slide up the inside. And as we get to the apex, there is contact. It's the overtaker's fault easily. It's just a clear cut. That, that is when you've left it too late. So that's when the crossover happens. Any point before that, if that car sliding up the inside had arrived there before you've entered that lane and they managed to stay in that inside lane at the apex, because that's the next thing. If they've come in with this overspeed, they're probably actually going to run wide as Ricardo did in this example. And for anyone who wants to watch this, if you just um, check uh, search YouTube for 
um, Daniel Ricardo's top 10 lunges or something like that. Yes. Uh, just type Ricardo overtake Shanghai. You'll, you'll find it straight away. In that situation, he did move. He uh, arrived in lane one, you know, the inside lane at the, at the apex, but then went two, three, four on the exit because he'd arrived there so fast. So normally, even if the driver does arrive there on the inside before the defending driver has got all the way across, they probably can't maintain that tight line. You know, that's one of the nature of taking a tighter line is you have to be going slower in order to maintain that line, um, which is why that's not typically the racing line. So he probably will run wide into lane two, which is probably why he's not going to do the move. Um, or if he does, you're going you're gonna to end up with contact. Yeah, so I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around so Bottas's mindset, he's going for the apex and then suddenly, you know, Daniel Ricciardo, he appears there. So suddenly his, his lane immediately shifts one over as soon as he is aware that Ricciardo dives down the inside. And actually, to be fair to Bottas, he, he realized he'd been done and he did. You can see the swerve where he, he, cause obviously he's, he's not me. He's good. And uh, he's able to like jink out. And then, and then allow Ricardo to come through. Uh, so I don't remember that part, but so what you're yeah, saying yeah, you is can see that, he, yeah. he realized, yep. okay, I've been done. Yep. And then he went, okay, let's, let's stop defending now. Let's go wide to try and yeah, um, I, undo some of the damage and get a better exit. Yeah, I think it looked like he thought he was definitely tight enough. And when he realized that there was going to be some part of Ricardo there, and, and then the closer they get to the apex, the more that's a problem, he, he jinked out of the way. So he, he was okay. compliant in the end. Um, anyway, this has been a fascinating chat and the, the time has absolutely flown by. We've covered nothing of what I thought we were going to cover. Um, apologies for people who thought it was too Jeansy versus Spanners centric. Uh, but we did try to relate it to some, some F1 incidents as well. So our, our first kind of case studies for the missed apex rules of engagement book have been fairly comprehensively covered. So we, we blame the Stappen. If you take out of it the context of the team orders, the situation, the fact that Ocon was a backmarker, just purely from track position, we feel that Verstappen violated the Bradley Philpott lane system. Yeah, technically, that's it was Verstappen at fault. So, and, 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 and the, you can then build the context around it and argue to your heart's content. But as a steward looking at that yeah. isolated incident, regardless of what lap they're on versus the other one, Verstappen mm-hmm. was the one that. It was at fault. He fr- caused the collision. Our friends in the chat room saying, when do we write the rules? So I, I will listen back and, and do uh, a version of the rules. I'll post them. People can make comments. We'll make amendments and we'll try and settle it. But good. We've got, we've got some precedent now there on that situation. I like the fact that we've got a Rosberg and Hamilton uh, duo of situations. One where I think we, it was very controversial, the Barcelona one. If you remember back to social media, it was very split. The Austria one, very split as well. I, I'm guessing, Brad, that you would put Spain down to Rosberg and Austria down to Hamilton. Um, no, the Spain one we just discussed. Yeah, that was, was Rosberg. Well, not not as you've just described it. Hamilton drove on the grass and then lost control. Oh, right, Hamilton. Yeah. Oh, actually, yeah. I suppose the contact is Hamilton's fault. Yeah, Ham- yeah. Hamilton could have uh, just gone straight, stayed off the grass, maintained control, and then had Rosberg continued across as he did yes. oh, and made right. contact. Then it would have been Rosberg's fault. So actually, yeah, it's Hamilton's fault for being too nice initially, giving him too much room, more than he needed to. Or, or we could let's eventual. put it let's put it the other way. Let's give Rosberg the credit. He was aggressive enough to force his competitor to avoid that accident, and he read that situation. You could say perfectly. It's a similar thing to the whole you can mm. turn across whilst there's a car up your inside yeah. and hope they jump out of the way if you judge it correctly. Actually, well, Rosberg gained 
14 points. No, he gained seven points out of that situation because he would have lost that race because Hamilton was gone had he got passed on that straight. Whereas, in fact, they both crashed out. So he, he netted seven points out of that. So well done, Rosberg. And you, you, I don't agree with you, but I will yield that you think that uh, Rosberg was perfectly entitled to push Hamilton all the way out in the, that Austria incident, which I think was 2015. Yeah, I mean, the more I look at it, the the more tricky it becomes to assess. But if we're if we're reading the letter of the system that we're evolving, Hamilton could have waited slightly longer before he made that turn. Yeah, I think it's just really the geometry of that particular corner makes it very awkward. Yeah, I and agree. In fact, teammates obviously influenced Hamilton's expectations about what Rosberg would do versus what he actually did. Yeah, I would agree. I wish I wish we had time to explore all sorts of other um, situations because the more I think about it, the more relevant examples I think of. So just maybe for future chat, I'm going to say this one now so I don't forget it. Okay. Hamilton Vettel at Monza, where Vettel had his spin at the uh, second chicane. Is that right? Yeah. So where Hamilton went round the outside of Vettel, pinched him tight, um, and then Vettel touched the side of Hamilton and spun round. So that's a that's another good example of. Uh, that you can analyze but anyway i'll just throw that out there for maybe for next time uh i'm, I'm afraid brad I'm, I'm feel really bad we wanted to talk to you about vln as well but what we'll do is we will put up a poll of whether people think this kind of chat is worthwhile obviously we've we've really gone down a rabbit hole i love discussing this and i would have you back on every few weeks talking in this manner but we will let the people make a decision um but should we call it let's call it an advisory poll so that we can do whatever we want based on uh, whatever the result is. But uh, it would be great to get your feedback. Bradley, where can people catch up with you and, and find your excellent masterclass-style uh, Nürburgring videos? Okay, so yeah, as the season uh, is beginning to ramp up or the, the build-up to the season is beginning to ramp up, I'm sharing more and more stuff. So uh, three places to find me. Uh, number one on Twitter, at Bradley Philpot. It's quite simple. One L, one T. Um, you can go on Facebook. Bradley Philpot Motorsport is my page. That's probably the main hub of where most stuff gets shared. And videos on YouTube. Just search my name, Bradley Philpot, on YouTube, and you'll find my channel. Trumpets, are you still shipping mucky books? I bet you are. Oh, I completely am because of the wife's latest one. The one I love to hate is up for pre-sale. It's the first of three. So by all means... Sorry, there was interference on the line. That is my fault. That is my soundboard. Um, I'm going to try and put it in so that I'm going to stick it in and hopefully... Nope, it's really bad. So uh, there will be no theme music on exit, but uh, you plug away. Right. So it's the first of three. It's up for pre-sale. If you want to buy it or you're interested in it, go sign up now because it helps when they actually officially launch the book. The more people who bought it on pre-sale, the better the book the more exposure the book gets at Amazon, which is probably the place to go, or you could go through her website. But at any rate, at A Weaver writes on the Twitters, and of course, at MattPT55 on the Twitters. And we will be looking at a Sunday soon to do iRacing. Uh, so get in touch with me, SpannersReady at gmail.com if you want to be added to the list, and I'll tell you when it's going to be. I'm trying to work that around a family holiday at the moment. You can come to Simply Race with us on March 16th at 4pm. It's in Milton Keynes, and we're going to be racing on 15 pods up against each other, and it will be live-streamed. I think there's uh, a place or two left on that. We're also going karting on the 20th of April. That's Easter Saturday at Rye House Karting Track. Until next time, remember that wounds heal, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. Here's the outro from my phone into the mic.
the best I can do. Do you remember when you were worried about whether we could get that to 40 minutes? And I'm <laughs> sat here with like two hours worth of, yeah. um, of incidents that I really want to analyse. I was just taking the pressure off, but you are welcome to add to those notes because we honestly actually didn't even get to bullet point three, really. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.